was on October 30, 1938, that the nation of America went into mass hysteria over a radio program called The War of the Worlds. You see, The War of the Worlds was a radio program that these actors put together based upon a 40-year-old book. They were doing an adaptation of the book. And the thing is, they started this program on, at 8 p.m. on October 30th. And they started the program by saying, this is an adaptation of the book. The problem was this. NBC's broadcast had a very popular program going on. So the majority of the listeners did not tune into CBS until 8.12, 12 minutes into the broadcast. So they never heard what this was all about. But as soon as they turned on the radio, they heard these actors who were doing a phenomenal job bringing lifelike reality to a Martian invasion happening right now in New York City. And as the people listened, panic overtook them. And the whole country went into mass hysteria. In fact, there are reports that there was mass stampedes. People were just going crazy. People were calling the police departments, the, the newspapers, the radios. They were doing everything they could. They were so fearful that Martians were invading. It took the world by storm. You know, so often I think in our own sense, in our own world, because of the brokenness that's all around us, we have this fear that overwhelms us that overwhelms us into a new reality. And before we know it, just like those on October 30th, 1938, in our hearts, because of the brokenness we experience, we go into this hysteria mode, this panic mode, this broken down mode. And so often we struggle with this question of why, God, do you allow suffering? Why do you allow this to happen to me or the world or whatever it may be? You know, we struggle. How could a loving God a God that says he is good, that he is love, allows so much brokenness in this world. And I have to be honest, so many people have turned away from Christianity, from God himself. Why? Because they can't come to grips with this one question. And I wonder how many of you are sitting here right now struggling because you just can't come to grips with this one question. And you really question, God, how good are you really when I see all this brokenness and suffering in this world? When I see all this brokenness I'm dealing with right now. You know, there's a story that we touched on just a little bit a couple weeks ago in John 11. The story of Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the dead. There we talked about a couple weeks ago when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. But we really didn't go into the details of that story. And, and I really believe in John 11, in this story, we see the framework of what suffering is all about. What God wants to do in that space. And we're going to highlight this story a little bit today. You see, what happened in the story, Jesus was with his disciples. And he got word that a close friend of his named Lazarus was deathly ill to please come help. And you know what Jesus did? He hung out around the campfire. Hung out with the disciples, said, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go in a couple days. And finally, he took his time. He finally got to Bethany where all this was going on. And when he got there, Martha and Mary, they said, where were you? Here in this moment, we see the brokenness of Martha and Mary. They were ticked off with Jesus. Why? Because he didn't come soon enough. And they said, Jesus, if you would have been here... Lazarus, he's been dead and in the grave already for four days. If you were here, this would have never happened. And Jesus shows his emotions. Three times in the story, Jesus reveals himself 
over and over again with his raw emotions, his brokenness. Why? Because he sees the brokenness of the people right in front of him. He sees their sorrow. In fact, in John 11, verses 32 to 33, it's written about the story. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and, tr- and, and troubled. In this moment, we see the raw emotions of Jesus and his deep love for the people. And through their story, through seeing the emotions and breaking down with them and talking to about being the resurrection and life that, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. If you missed that message, go back onto our YouTube channel. You can see all the past messages. But then he walks to the tomb. He says, let's move the stone. And Mary and Martha are like, no, no. He's been in there four days. I don't even want to smell what's the smell that's about to come out of there. Don't move the stone. She says, no, 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 move the stone. They move the stone, and in a loud voice, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. And out walks this dead man back to life. You know what we learned in that story? Something we talked about a couple weeks ago, and like I said, go back and see the messages if you missed them. But the thing that we, we learn here, number one, death is a guarantee. Death is certain. One day, I'm going to die. One day, you will die. Guaranteed. But the other thing we see in this story is that Jesus has power over death. He is the absolute power over death. And because of that, his power over death is our heart, is our hope in the inevitable end that we face. He is our hope. And yet, as I read the story of Lazarus, as I really dig into this, I can't help but see how little the story really focuses on Lazarus. How little the story really focuses about the dead man in the tomb. The story is so focused on another element. And as I read this story, I just can't help myself but really dig into some questions. Questions that just raise up in my heart as I read this. You know, I just feel there's such deep questions like, okay, Jesus, if you plan to heal Lazarus, if you planned to raise him from the dead, why did he die in the first place? Why did you even allow this to happen? Why, why did this have to happen? Why did you let him die? And, and then when you got to Bethany and you knew you were about to do this, why didn't you just tell Martha, hey Martha, don't cry, I'm about to raise him from the dead. Why, why did you go allow all this mourning? Why did you allow all this pain? Why did you allow him to be so heartbroken when you knew what you were going to do anyway? Why didn't you just walk into Bethany and say, Lazarus, come out now? Those are the questions I have when I read this story. And I bet it's a lot of questions that we tend to deal with, too. God, if you're so good, and one day you're bringing your goodness of heaven to us, why? Why all this junk? But you know what we see in this story? There's a space. The space between Lazarus dying and Jesus rising, raising him from the dead. There's a space between there. And the space 
in which Martha sees Jesus for who he really is. It's a space where I wouldn't really understand who Jesus is over here. I would not understand him over here after it all happened. It's here in this space of brokenness, in the space of heartache, the space of disappointment, when I see Jesus for who he really is. You see, in my life, I just want what I want. I want the life I want. And suffering just becomes a nuisance in that. But in this space, I realize that what I want is not the ultimate end. Jesus is the ultimate end. In this journey, in this space, Jesus reveals, I am the end result. I am your goal. I am your everything. In this space, he reveals his goodness and the brokenness that is all around us. This space is where we understand who he is, acknowledge who he is, and ultimately surrender to that. You see, through this encounter, Mary and Martha realize that Jesus is our everything. And without going through the brokenness, being focused on my life and what I want, they and I would never realize who he is in all of his goodness. Because I believe the story of Lazarus absolutely illuminates the reality of suffering and prayer. It just illuminates it. You know, for many of us, myself included, if you're like me, prayer is more just like a means to an end. It's like a thing we threw out there, God, give me the life I want. It's almost like a cosmic vending machine if you will. You go to the vending machine, we put our dollar in, I want those, those chips right there, or those cookies, and we hit it, and it drops what we want. And when it doesn't, you've been there when it kind of gets stuck in there, and you start banging the vending machine, you kick it, you toss it around, because you want whatever's in there that's stuck in there, right? And we do the same thing to Jesus. It's like, Jesus, you're my cosmic vending machine. You're what you're that means that gets me to the end result, what I really want in life. And so if I just toss a prayer out there, you're supposed to give me what I want. Give me the life I want. And when it doesn't work out the way we want, then we kick them around and say, God, why are you so mad at me? That's exactly what Martha did in Bethany. Read the story. As soon as Jesus arrived, she went to him and she was mad. Jesus, why weren't you here? Why didn't you do what I asked you to do? She was ticked off. But you know what she didn't do? She didn't see Jesus and go the other way. She went to him. Jesus isn't afraid of our anger and our questions. He wants them. And through this, Martha realized that Jesus is not the means to an end. He's not the mechanism that gets us what we want. He's not here to change our circumstances so that we can get the life that we want. Jesus is the end. He's our very life. We've used this verse many times, but it's such a crucial verse that we cannot overlook. Just a few chapters later, Jesus said to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, what Jesus was revealing with the story of Lazarus, he speaks it quite frankly in John 14. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am your end result. I am your goal. You see, the problem, though, that I think we tend to run into 
is we just view life as this world is, I'm, I'm, was made for me to enjoy it. That, you know, I am supposed to get the life I want. It's all about me. And suffering just becomes a problem that robs us of our life and, and thwarts us away from what we really want. And sometimes I think um, all we have to do is, 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 uh, is, is, is run towards Jesus and he'll give us what we want. And then you know what tends to happen? When suffering happens, and for those of you who have never experienced suffering yet, let me, can, can I just throw you a little promise? You will experience suffering one day. Don't think that you're immune to it. I used to think, oh, life is good, just do what I want. Suffering is going to come your way one day because we all live in the same world. And what tends to happen when suffering does come, and we don't know how to deal with it, we don't want to deal with it, we get mad about it, we start to find distractions to hide ourselves from it. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe you just get more involved with work. Maybe you get tuned into another TV show, whatever it may be, but we try to run from the suffering that we're dealing with because we don't want to deal with it. We just find distractions so we can hide from it. But can I just promise you something? You cannot hide your way out of suffering. It's just going to intensify. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. At some point, like Mary and Martha, we find ourselves in the space of brokenness. A space where life was good. There's supposedly a promise of good life beyond this. But here I am in the space of brokenness. And what do I do with this? How do I deal with this? And then you know what happens? In this space, rather than running towards God... We run away from God, and we begin to miss out on all the goodness that is God. All throughout this world, as soon as you walk out your front door, God reveals himself. All throughout creation. We've mentioned this verse many times in Romans 1.20. God's invisible qualities, or I'm sorry, his visible qualities, his creation, reveal his invisible qualities, who he is. All around us, God reveals himself through creation. Yet so often, because we become so used to what we see, we lower it down. It's like it becomes mundane. We don't think about it anymore. It's like for those people who live on the beach, you know, we think, boy, the beach is awesome. I could live here my whole life, and I would never get sick of it. But then those people who live there, I haven't been to the beach in months because it becomes so normal to them. You know, we live by three amazing rivers. But for those of you, for us who have lived at Pittsburgh our whole life, it's become so normal. It's not as amazing anymore. And before we know it, we walk past the miracles that God gives to us every single day. God, where are you? Why aren't you showing yourself to me? He's like, and listen. You walk past my miracle every day. The sunset, these mountain peaks, the deep blue amazing oceans that you guys don't even know what's all down there still. The amazing universe and all these galaxies, you guys have no idea. Every day you see my miracles at work and throughout all of his miracles, that is creation. He reveals his significance, his goodness, his generosity, the fact that he is the giver of life. Think about this, my friends. Everything in God's creation that lives, 
lives to provide life for something else. I mean, plants provide oxygen. Mothers give birth. Water gives life. Everything in God's creation exists to provide for something else. And throughout creation, God consistently and overwhelmingly reveals his goodness. The fact that, hey guys, I am the giver of life. And even when we have gone astray and gone against him and sinned and brought brokenness into this world and separate ourselves from him, he said, I'm going to take a step further. I'm going to reveal to you again that I am the giver of life. I'm going to send my one and only son into this world to die for you on that cross. You see, throughout creation, through everything that I do, I consistently and constantly reveal I am life. And I'm the one who provides life for you. I am good. You know, all throughout history, we see brokenness. We see a history full of brokenness as soon as sin entered the Garden of Eden. But all throughout history, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, right there smack dab in the middle of history, God staked that cross. Because he said, through suffering, you will find life. And this cross is the linchpin. It's not plan B. It's not a, oops, I made a mistake. It is the linchpin of everything that I am. I am the giver of life. And through suffering in this space, the God of all that is, the creator of everything that exists, revealed that his love comes through sacrifice, through suffering. And he experienced suffering just like we do in this world. And he brought life into this world. You know, in this space of suffering, we learn that achieving and maintaining the life that we want is not our goal of existence. It's just not. In fact, it's just a fruitless endeavor that one day you're going to be left disappointed. You're going to be left broken. Our goal of our existence is not to gain what we want. Jesus is the goal of our existence. He's why we exist. You know, for Martha and Mary and Bethany, their circumstances, you know what they did? It drove them to Jesus himself. It's not that their suffering or our suffering doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter. In fact, it matters so much that it breaks the heart of God. It brings tears to his very eyes. One of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture is just two words. John 11 says, Jesus wept. And in these two profound words, we see and we get a glimpse of the heart of God. His passion for you. His passion that says your suffering, your brokenness, it matters to me. It matters to me. And I am the giver of life. And in this space of brokenness, I want you to see me, understand what I provide, and surrender to me and experience what I have. You know, our suffering, our brokenness, it matters to Jesus. It matters like a first meeting matters to a marriage 
or like a birth matters to motherhood. It is the entry point to a relationship that will transform your life. A relationship through suffering as much as through joy. If Jesus claims that he is the way, the truth of life, that he is the goal of our existence is, is him, then ultimately what matters most is a relationship with him that's found through our brokenness to this point. You see, all this is because through suffering, it magnifies God's love for us. That's ultimately what suffering does. It magnifies his love. He did not cause or create the suffering in your life. He allows it to happen. Why? Because of the brokenness that we brought into this world by sin and through, through our own poor choices. But through suffering, he reveals himself. He uses suffering to draw us towards his heart, towards who he is and what he ultimately desires is a relationship with you and me. But you know, here's a problem that sometimes people have. It's, it's, it's a mindset that has gone on from the beginning of time. And people believe that suffering occurs because it's a punishment for my own personal sin. That, that I am suffering because of what I did. Now, let me just be honest. You know, sometimes there are consequences for our poor choices. And your choices bring consequences into your life. And there's a close connection between the sin that has come into the world and suffering that takes place in this world. But your level of suffering is not a direct result of your personal sin. In fact, the Bible deals with this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Job. You know, Job was a man who suffered severe suffering. You know, go back to the Old Testament. He has a whole book about his story. Read it. We're not going to go through. We're just going to give some highlights of his story. But Job was like the Bill Gates, the, the, the who's the Amazon guy? John Bezos or something like that, right? You know, he was the, these, the richest of the rich of that time. He had everything that the world could imagine. And then one day Satan goes up to God because can't, Satan can't do anything without God's permission Hey, God, so I want to take out one of your followers. God says, okay. I don't think you can, but okay. How about Job? I mean, he's, there's no one like Job in the world. I mean, he, he's faithful. He's like, seems like I can take him out. This is Bill Balbock paraphrase, by the way. And then God says, you can do, you can't touch him, but you can go after him. Satan goes back, and then we see a man face destruction like no other. You read Job chapter 1. All of his wealth, all of his servants, bam, gone like that. And it just happened like out here in the field, all of his livestock, uh, you know, were just, were just overtaken by, by a raiding army. And then that one servant survived. He came to Job. And he says, Job, uh, so this raiding army came over from, from the east, and they wiped everything out. I'm the only survivor. And as soon as that guy finished that statement, another servant came running to Job from, from the other end and said, Job, another army came this way, and everything that we had in the fields over here was completely wiped out. I'm the only survivor. And as soon as that man finished that sentence, another servant came running over to Job and said, Job, your kids and all of your servants were over here in the building, and this huge storm came, and the building collapsed, and everyone's dead, and I'm the only survivor. And in those quick minutes, Job, who had everything a man could possibly desire, lost it all. Could you imagine? In this story, you see a man go from, I got it all, into the space of brokenness. And Job says this in Job 
or the Bible says this in Job 1. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from, the, from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. Job was broken. He was broken. And right after he said this in Job chapter 2, Satan again struck him with these boils that covered his whole skin. You couldn't even recognize him, the Bible says. He was so broken in pain, itchiness. It was just overwhelming. And then his close friends came. They came to, to, to uh, encourage him. And the Bible says in Job 2, when his friends came, check this out, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat in the, on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. They didn't recognize him. And his suffering was so great, that he was like, I don't even know what to say. But as the story goes along, these great friends and his wife that were supposed to be there to support him and encourage him, you know all they did? Over and over again, Job, you, you did this to yourself. You brought this on you. You sinned. You broke. God's mad at you. You did this. But the Bible says through all this, Job never turned away from God. He through this, he acknowledged God and he continually surrendered God, to God. In the space of brokenness, like Martha in the New Testament, he ran to God. And at the end of his story in Job 42, Job speaking to God said this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. See, Job learned something that his friends kind of missed out on. His friends were, you did this. And through this, Job said, I just need God. I just need him. Even in the New Testament, the disciples wrestled with this same mindset that our sin brings upon these punishments. And dealing with the same thing, Jesus said these words in John 9. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus said, no, no, you guys, you guys got it wrong. His sin didn't make him blind. But his suffering, I'm going to reveal myself through this. I'm going to reveal who I am through him. You see, in our suffering, God reveals who he is. You know, while we can look for some meaning through suffering, we should never use it as a measuring stick for guilt or think that, boy, if I only prayed harder, if I only had more faith, this wouldn't be happening to me. That's just not biblically accurate at all. You know, God loves us so desperately. Suffering came into this world not because God created it for us, but because we turned from him and we brought this into this world. God did not create it, but he allows it, and, but he uses suffering to draw us closer to him, to his heart, to his goodness. You know, as we read the Bible, we see so many biblical characters along the way, and every one of them went through brokenness. Every biblical character character suffered 
in some way, in some form or fashion. And, and I believe that if you went to them in those darkest moments of their brokenness, I bet nobody, none of those people would ever say, I get this. I, I know exactly where I am in the story. They were just as lost as sometimes we are in our brokenness. But they constantly searched out who God was and what God wanted to do through them. And I know if you're in the midst of suffering right now, hope of a happy ending can really seem insensitive or difficult to see. You know, there's a parent whose teenage son was brain damaged in a sporting accident. And they shared their perspective on suffering with these words. They said, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. They're saying, it's not an embarrassment to who Jesus is. Without this, I would have never ran to him. I would never ran to him. You know, from a Christian's perspective, there is hope for a better end. But even beyond that, there's an intimacy with the one who created everything. The one who is the giver of life. Suffering is not an embarrassment. Suffering is not a uh, guilt-ridden thing for you. Suffering is an opportunity that in this space, I can see God for who he is. See Jesus for who he really is. And the truth is, God loves you. And really an intimate relationship with Jesus, what he ultimately wants, is found in the journey through suffering. It's not fun. It's not easy. But that intimate relationship with Jesus is found through that journey. And suffering produces character. It produces hope, and it produces a bond that we've never understood before outside of this space that we find ourselves in. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5. Not only so, but also glory in our sufferings. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering produces character, perseverance, and provides hope. You know, in, the, in, the Revelation, in Revelation, we see something spectacular. Jesus said that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has gone away, has passed away. You know, the Bible begins... And it ends with happiness. But in the middle, it's just a raw story of brokenness. And Jesus, he promised that he will wipe away every tear. But you know what he did not promise? He did not say you will never cry. He did not say you will never be broken. But he said in the middle of that, in the space of that brokenness, I will be there. Just like I showed up in Bethany with Mary and Martha. And I showed up in so many other spaces for mankind all throughout history. I will be there. But in that moment, who will you run to? Will you run to him? Or will you run away from him? There's no happiness in suffering. 
but through suffering we can find joy that only comes through the creator of everything is, through the giver of life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you right now. And Lord, I know in our world there is so much brokenness. But Lord, in our brokenness, help us to see you. Just like with the story of Lazarus, we have so many questions. Why you allow things to happen? Why you didn't just do immediately what you can do? Why don't you just show up with a miracle? But Lord, you are the miracle. You are life. You're not just a means to the end, you are the end. And Lord, I pray in this moment for those who are suffering right now in some way, Lord, I pray that we can all run to you and experience you in a whole new way and see the goodness of what you provide. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.